This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit wogcc.com. If your hope is in the promises of God and your relationship to Him, no circumstance can take it. We don't thank God for everything in our lives because bad things happen. But we thank that God that he is in our lives and he can take even that which is painful and hurtful and use it for his glory if we're willing to give it to him. I'd like to give you the name of a book that has helped me in this area because as a pastor, you go to people's home, tragedy has occurred. They're wonderful Christians, but they're devastated and they look you in the face and they say, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Well, there, there, there's no answer to that. We live in a fallen realm. But a lady has helped me. She is a um, Quaker lady from the 1800s. Her name is Hannah Whithall Smith. And her book is called The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. Uh, I mentioned to the staff here that I buy these and try to put them where I can get a hold of them and give them away. They're $5. Now, I, mean, I want to give you a hint about giving away a book. You never buy a new book and give it to somebody because what you're saying is you need this. But if you will read it first and make notes in it, wow, I never heard this. Uh, Put it in the dryer. Let it look used a little bit. Uh, Then you're sharing what was meaningful to you, right? And this book, I think, answers this question about why me and why now in a way. One of the beautiful quotes I like, she says, faith does not know that it has wings until it's knocked off its feet. Now, you and I have met people in crisis who have turned away from God. My mother, um, I just surrendered to preach. My sister was killed by a drunk truck driver. And my mother said to me, I'll never pray again. I said, Mother, I just surrendered to preach. You're never going to pray for me? She said, I'm never going to pray again. My mother damaged herself. My mother got mad at God, and it affected her relationship. I've met people like that. You've met people like that. Quite often, we can't help them. But those who are willing to hear from God can take whatever happens and use it as a stair step to an intimate, closer relationship with Him. I hope you'll look at that book, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. In verse 5, there are two Greek words for no. Um, Oida and Gnosko. Both of them are used in this. The play here is the false teachers say, we know, we got the secret knowledge. And Paul comes right back and says, no, real knowledge is in the gospel and in the Son. So be careful of, I used to get tickled as there used to be a guy, the, the, the Way International, uh, Herbert W. Armstrong, you ever heard that word? And he used to say, the real Greek says, and I I thought to myself, and what have I got? Chopped liver? I mean, it's just one Greek text, but it's that elitism. We tell students, if somebody tells you God only speaks to them and they want your your money and your wife, run. (laughs) Because those are the markers of exploitation. Elite knowledge financial exploitation, and sexual exploitation. These are the marks of a cult. Run. Uh, now, know if you would, uh, it says no immortal, impure person or covetous man. Now, we're not saying that Christians don't struggle with this. 
And we're not saying this is in the past of Christians. We're saying when you meet Christ, things begin to change. And just like in 1 John 3, and this is the verse I used to check a new translation, where it basically says, anyone who sins is not of God. Well, it's not talking about sin, i.e. one time. It's talking about a life dominated by sin. Now, if your life is dominated by sin, chances are either you have not met Jesus or you're a damaged Christian who's been captured by the world. So uh, we're, we're different. We're in a process of change. Now, I want to talk just a moment about the kingdom of Christ and God. I have never preached a sermon on the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the kingdom of God. And the reason is because it's such a difficult biblical concept. And the reason is this. It is the Old Testament view that God is king. Don't you love that Isaiah passage? Our God reigns. Isn't that beautiful? He reigns now. He has always reigned. Amen? And one day, in Jesus' prayer, may that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer for the kingdom of God to reign on earth. But Jesus has come two times. He came the first time as the suffering servant to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. The new age of the spirit dawned with the coming of Christ. A radical something happened. But his coming is also split into a coming as savior and invitation to respond and a coming to judge. And it's that tension between the already and the not yet. Uh, It's the two kingdoms of God in the Old Testament. The Old Testament believed that initially there was fellowship and union and, and conversation between God and man, but Genesis 3 changed that. And then we came to an age of unrighteousness, an age of rebellion, an age of brokenness. But God was going to send his Messiah into the world to set up a new kingdom of righteousness, okay? But what the Old Testament missed is the overlapping of these two ages. So we live in this tension-filled time between the comings. We live in the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. I have forgiveness of sin and I still struggle with sin. My physical body is decaying, yet I have eternal life. It is that kind of terrible tension. We have uh, the old nature and we have the new nature. The rabbis have a beautiful little proverb they say, and every man's heart is a good and a bad dog, and the one you feed the most is the one that becomes the biggest. What dog are you feeding? So that, and you see I've done a special topic if you have the notes where I've tried to lay this out for you in one of these um, real quick kind of theological asides. Now in verse 6, let no one deceive you. This is a special construction in Greek that means stop an act already in process. It is, it is exactly what they would have understood when they heard this form. They were being deceived. These churches were being torn up by false teachers. Here it's called with empty words. And then it says, the wrath of God comes. I want to read this paragraph to you. Kind of just follow with me in your mind if you don't have the notes. By the way, I think that wrath refers to two things. There is temporal wrath. David sinned and his first child with Bathsheba died. Right? That, di- that child died because of what David did. There is a temporal judgment that occurs in our world. It's like somebody who abuses alcohol. You can be forgiven, but your liver may be damaged, right? You can be forgiven for drug addiction, but your mind may be affected. 
Sin can be forgiven, but the consequences move through time, right? So we know there's going to be an end time judgment. There is also an end time judgment. Here's my little note. While on the subject of the wrath of God, let me be clear about my understanding of its implications. First, it is the theological tragedy to overemphasize or underemphasize this truth. God is angry with the way mankind treats his word, his world, his will, and each other. This is not the world that God intended it to be. All humans will give an account to God for how they've lived their lives. However, it is important to recognize the biblical perspective on this doctrine. Deuteronomy 5.9, I hope you know Deuteronomy 5.9, the sins of the parents are visited to the what? Third and fourth generation, right? Sin affects three to four generations. Lifestyle is communicated through families. But if you'll look at Deuteronomy 7.9, it says God's love moves to the thousand generations. A real good way of seeing the character of God is that judgment is necessary three to four generations, but grace is the basic character a thousand generations. Matter of fact, Isaiah even calls God's judgment his strange work. So we've got to see the character, yes? Because I think many Christians see God as the hanging judge of the universe. They turn God into the super don't, and it just becomes a negative kind of... There is, some, there is some don'ts in the Bible, but primarily there are do's and become and be, and I'm with you. So I think, I think we must do that. Okay, I'd like to uh, go then a, a bit over. Um, sorry I'm having to skip so much of this. I want to go, if you look at your Bibles, at 515. Now, do you have a Bible that shows paragraph divisions? This is the paragraph on the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit. This, in my opinion, is the definitive passage in the New Testament on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we could talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. We could talk about the gifts. We could talk about the baptism. But tonight, I want to talk, because of this text, on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Some of these other events are one-time events, but this is a repeatable event. And this is the major text on it. So, first of all, it starts out in a strange way in verse 15. Remember, all paragraphs have one major truth. And every verse or, or, or phrase has to limit, explain, define, or illustrate that truth. So as you read verses 15 through 21, you ask yourself, what is the main truth being given? Well, it's something about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Now, what is surprising here is, number one, Verse 18 is where I'm going to start. What does do not be drunk with wine have to do but be filled with the Spirit? Holy moly, of all the things I would think don't go together, it's getting bombed and getting filled. I mean, <laughs> what in the world? Well, let me think about this. If we went out of church tonight and found somebody in the parking lot inebriated, that's just an academic word for smash <laughs> could we tell? Yes, there would be a smell. There would be motor skills affected, both speech and walk. You could tell this person has abused uh, something. Now, does that person manifest those characteristics for the rest of their lives? No, it's when they take whatever they take and those characteristics appear. Now, watch this. The spirit-filled life doesn't last forever either. You can't be filled once and it lasts the rest of your life. Now, follow with me. 
<laughs> I'm going to try to do this funny if I can, because I can hit you harder if I do it funny. <laughs> um, if you get a concordance, pick up the word field, you'll find that it usually talks about the way to characterize a person. We can be filled with love, we can be filled with hate, we can be filled with greed, we can be filled with whatever. It's a way of characterizing the person. In the Pentecostal sermon, the first sermon of the church, Acts chapter 2, the Bible says Peter is filled. By the way, isn't it amazing? Peter, the denier, got to preach the first sermon. Do you see the grace of God in that? I don't know the man. And a few hours later, he's up in front of the group. Secondly, in Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches the second sermon of the church, and the Bible says Peter was filled. Acts chapter 4 says, and all the apostles were filled. The theology is obvious. Peter leaks. <laughs> He's got a hole in the bucket, friends, and so do you. And we've got to have as much coming in of the Lord as uh, the evil day in which we live and the sins we struggle with causes it to leak out. This is a repeatable experience. And the verb tense here means it's a command, not an option. And by the way, when I say the Spirit fill life, if you think this means the big events like a, a visitation for the church or a revival or some special mission trip, you don't get it at all. This is the norm for every Christian every day. And the fact that surprises us exactly shows the problem. But this is something, it's, it's the, a passive voice verb, which means we cannot fill ourselves. But because of the way God works with us, we must allow him to fill us. It's my illustration of the door with the handle on your side. You had to open it for salvation and you have to repeatedly open it for the power of God to flow into your life. Sometimes several times a day, depending on what you're going through. So here we have something that must be repeated for the characteristics to manifest. Do you mean that I just don't get filled once? And then, that's right, that's what I'm saying to you. This is a repeatable event. And we must think about that and, and, and deal with it. One more thing I want to uh, say here, because I guess we could fight over what it means to be filled. I mean, we could say, well, I think it means this and I think it means that. Now, this is biblical evidence I have, and I, I hope you'll think with me. I told you that Colossians is Paul's first letter to the false teachers. Then based almost exactly on the same outline, he wrote Ephesians as a cyclical letter to help all the churches prepare for this false teaching. So if I can find a place, not in wording, but in the structure between Ephesians 5.18, where does that same structure appear in Colossians? Friends, it's Colossians 3.6. And if you look at there, it becomes obvious. Wives, be subject. It's the same exact place. And in Colossians 3, it doesn't say ever be filled with the Spirit. It says, let the word of Christ richly indwell you. Do you mean the filling of the Spirit is the same as the word of Christ richly indwelling us? Yes. It's a call to Christ-likeness. And I hope you'll check that. It's in the notes here, and you can see it. And I, I think it's... a. Um, I, th I think it's a, a powerful one. Okay, now, verse 19. All you singers. This, this church has a lot of wonderful musicians. What, now, follow with me what's going to happen because I'm going to make a point and I'm going to make it on the grammar of this text, which means it's not my opinion and you can check me. The ever be filled is a present passive verbal form, okay? And Paul's going to explain what he means by this by five present participles. He's going to define filling, the command, 
by an immediate five participles. The first three have to do with music, speaking, singing, and making melody, or singing, psalming, if you come to This has to do not with the professional musicians who sing. Some of us can't sing well, but it's amazing how much I help Sandy Patty when I'm alone in my car. I don't know how that woman does it without me. <laughs> in the shower, I am one musical dude, I'm telling you, but tell me. It comes, it happens in times of crisis. I remember I was in, Arge, uh, in Honduras on a mission trip and my mother died. And Peggy and I flew back to what? Sing the songs of Zion at a gravesite. And how many times in the middle of the night, confused and worried about my kids and worried about what should I do and worried about where should I go. And those wonderful passages of scripture, the Psalms or the songs that I have learned in church start warfing through my mind. Oh, <laughs> I was in seminary. I don't want to get too emotional, but I might. I was in seminary. I, I remember praying this prayer. Derek, it's the most stupid prayer I ever prayed. I prayed, God, if there's something I need to go through to better help my people, I'm willing. I, oh, that's a stupid prayer. <laughs> because I started doubting my own salvation. I was a pastor. Um, I, I, I had forgotten almost everything about when I was saved, forgot how I felt, forgot what I said. Everything's gone. Everything's gone. And the devil has just abused me through the years over it. And I can remember in the balcony of seminary crying because I wasn't sure I was a Christian. And they started singing this song. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can I say than to you I have said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And that hymn writer took my fear and ejected it right out of my life. <laughs> Bob, I've said everything you need. Now trust me, right? Don't let the evil one say, you forgot, you didn't do any, have I joined the right group, did I say the right thing, did I feel the right way? But all that's bull. Do you know him? Do you love him? Then get over it, you're going to be with me forever. Amen. Now, if you would, this is, this is, I think, the song of the heart. The, the, if you look at verse 20, giving thanks is one of the marks of a spirit-filled Christian. A song whose heart is filled with songs is one marker, and then a thanksgiving. Now, the one I really like is 1 Thessalonians 5.18, where a series of imperatives, just like a machine gun of what a Christian life is, and one of them is give thanks in all things, for that is the will of God in Christ for you. Uh, it, I'm not there yet. You know, I've met people who are, I guess... Um, have you ever met those folks? We had a, a single lady in our church in Fort Worth, and she needed a job, and one of our men owned an insurance company. And this was the kind of person you see her on Sunday, and she goes, oh, God bless you. How are you? Jesus loves you. Oh, holy, holy. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> well, they hired her at the insurance company to answer the phone. So people were calling in with wrecks and tornadoes. She's going, glory to God. Hallelujah. How are you? Jesus loves They fired her, man. She's gone. They she just could not answer the phone with that kind of joy at an insurance office. But uh, I, I want that kind of joy. But I must admit, when I get a flat tire, I'm going, oh, Jesus, thank you. I get to visit. No, I'm not there. Oh, I have a fever. How glorious. I am not there. I want to be there. I, I want to say, God, I know that um, nothing in my life happens that you're not a part of. And I don't understand it, and I don't see it, 
But I know you're with me and for me. And I need the eyes of my faith open to that. And I need to not be determined by circumstance and emotions which are up and down. I need to be determined by the promises of God. I don't thank God for everything in my life, but I thank God he's in my life. Does that make sense? I hope you you come to that. Now, ladies, you're going to hug me for this, so be careful because that makeup gets all over me and Peggy gets so upset when there's several shades. So, uh, (laughs) This text does not say command wives to be subject. Sorry. Told you those five participles. The first four are present active. This is a present middle. Now, present middle is a voice that's not in English. It means that the subject is uniquely involved in the verb for self-interest. Christian wives are asked to submit to their husbands for the purpose of the gospel. Now think what I'm saying. See, to us, the word submit is a negative word. But if you look at my notes, Jesus is said to submit to the Father and submit to his parents. And I submit to you that a word that's used of Jesus can't be a negative word. It is a military word. It does mean a chain of command. But I want to take a a few things here about what it means to be submissive. So literally it says, wives to husbands as to Lord is what it's going to say a couple of verses down. But I want you to look at your Bibles. Look at verse 21. Does 21 say anything about wives? Where does the paragraph start? Starts on down, right? Verse 21 is not about husbands and wives or men and women. It's about how Christians ought to treat each other. We ought to be submissive to one another. That humility is a mark of being spirit-filled. Now watch with me. Watch the structure. You got the imperative. You got five participles. Now Paul is going to pick one area of life to illustrate how this spirit-filled life works. And he happened to pick the Christian home. So he's going to take the three people who have no power, wives, children, and slaves, and speak to them. At the same time, he's going to take the three people who have all cultural power, husbands, parents, and slave owners. And he's going to relate how being filled with the Spirit changes every one of those intimate relationships in the home. Now, if if you have a Bible that has italicized words, if you look where it says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, does anybody in this room have a Bible where be subject is italicized? Well, you do. You're just not looking good. Because that verb is not in the Greek text. It's, the Greek says, wise to husband as to Lord. You've got to have a verb. All commentaries, all translations are dropping the verb from 21 into 22. Which means they're just dropping it down. If they drop it down, it is not a command. It's a middle imperative. Which means wives submit to their husbands for self-interest. And the self-interest is twofold. A stronger homes last through time. And whatever is culturally acceptable, we do so that people can be drawn to Christ. You understand what I'm saying? Every relationship is affected by the health and growth of the body, not what's in it for me. And I think that's the truth we have to come to. I've given you these special topics. If you have the notes on page 159... I hope you will look at the special topic called women in the Bible. Uh, I think we have neglected the place of women in the plan of God. 
and we have certainly um, been skewed. I, I kind of fuss at my fundamentalist friends and say, your theology is more like Islam than it is the New Testament. Because I want you to know that men and women are equal in creation. Amen? He made them male and female in his image, right? And there is mutuality before the fall, and the submissive idea only comes in Genesis 3. And I submit to you at salvation, that is changed back to a mutuality. And God has always used women. Matter of fact, Deborah was a leader of all the tribes of Israel. And her military commander wouldn't go to battle unless she went along with him. There has always been godly leadership among women. What is the matter with you? So why, not, why isn't there a, a woman apostle? Well, there may be, you big weenie. And if you want to see it, I'll show it to you right now. Will you turn with me to Romans 16? And I didn't write Romans. <laughs> Romans 16. Do you see verse 7? Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles. Now, we don't know if this is a husband and wife or two men. So, you say, look at the word Junius. Do you have a, a note in your Bible? Is any, any marginal note at the word Junius in your Bible? Now, the best Greek manuscripts have the word Junius with the S. But we have never found that name in any Roman tombstone, in any Roman legal document. The name Junius never appears, not once. And we have thousands of Roman documents and graves. The word Junia, on the other hand, is a Roman family name, but it's feminine. This is quite possibly a feminine apostle. But let me hear me say again, if we go back to the first century and women in place of leadership in most places except for where Lydia lived were a problem to the culture. And Paul is going to limit whatever in the church to reach the culture. Now follow with me. I think two things have changed and women and slavery are the two things. There is no negative word in the whole New Testament about slavery. Paul says, if you're a slave, stay a slave. Be a good slave. Be a Christian slave. If you can be free, be free, but don't worry about it. Slavery is a, was a, a, just a reality of the Greco-Roman world. Two-thirds of the world were slaves in Paul's day. If your nation got beat, uh, defeated in battle, you were sold into slavery. That's the end of that. If they would have tried to stand up and say slavery is bad, the gospel would have never. It would have been destroyed. Now, the gospel destroyed slavery in time. Now, the same thing is true of a patriarchal system. That was the day. It's still the day. In the, you just need to thank God you're not a woman in the Middle East. But the gospel changed that too. And this shows how the Bible has to be interpreted in light of its own day. There is eternal truth, but sometimes it has cultural husk. People say, we've got to go back to the Bible. Well, does that mean I have to ride a donkey and wear sandals? Do I have to own slaves to truly be biblical? See, I think we've got to think through this. And I don't think we've thought through it well. The best book that's helped me is a book on Bible interpretation. It's, it's not technical. It is for you. It's $15 at any bookstore in the whole United States. And it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee, F-E-E, and Stewart, S-T-U-A-R-T. You'll hug my neck if I ever see you again about this uh, book. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It'll free you. Okay. I want to mention in verse 21 this word fear of Christ. Fear, I just love the songs y'all sing that 
I, you know, where I, where I go to church, we just don't do it that way. But I, am, I meet Christians who are afraid. They wouldn't articulate it, but the way they live, they're afraid. We've got to realize that fear is inappropriate for the Christian. Amen? At every level. But respect and awe for the Holy One is appropriate at every level. So often in the Bible, the word fear means an, a reverence, an awe, a respect, not a dog with a paper to hit him. No, no. And it, that's, we don't have to fear Christ. No, no, no. It's not because we sinned or did something wrong. We have, no, no, no. We've been accepted as sinners. We respect him. We awe him. We revere him. That's what we're talking about here, and we've got to be careful. Now, I want to talk about male headship just for a minute. I want to read this paragraph because um, I feel like I just spent so much time in prayer in this. I don't want to leave something out, and I often do. So just I'm on page 162 if you want to follow me. And it's hus- the husband is the head as Christ is the head. I can personally accept male headship as a result of the fall, Genesis 3, 1 Timothy 2. I can also affirm it as a biblical concept in light of Jesus' leadership of the church. But what I find difficult to accept is a patriarchal mandate, male-dominated societies, as God's revealed will for every age and every society. Does the mutuality so obvious in Genesis 1, which is lost in Adam and Eve's rebellion, return in salvation? Is the curse of sin and uh, servitude both dealt with in Jesus' redemption? As the new age breaks into the lives of believers now, does also the restoration of complete fellowship with God as in Eden also begin now? I would like to make a hermeneutical point. As an interpreter of what I have to believe be the self-revelation of the one true God and His Christ, I am surprised by the cultural aspects of Scripture. We see it obviously in the Old Testament, circumcision, the food laws, leprosy laws. But it is much more difficult for us as modern Christians to see it in the New Testament. I am sure because of this, number one, our love and respect for the Bible, and two, our tendency toward propositional literalism, the two issues which stand out to me have have obvious cultural aspects. Male-dominated societies, patriarchy, and slavery. The New Testament never attempts to address the unfairness of these cultural pillars of the ancient world, possibly because we, to do so would have meant the destruction of Christianity. Yet the gospel through time is abolishing both. God's truth never changes, but societies do change. It is a grave mistake for us to attempt to turn first century Greco-Roman culture into God's will for all people in all places, and of course the same is true for Israelite culture. Into each of them, God revealed himself in powerful and permanent ways. The real task is how to find the eternal absolutes in our cultural husk. And this is where I mentioned how to read the Bible. One way to try to determine what is cultural and what is eternal and therefore binding on all believers in all periods and what is cultural uh, or personal preference is to see if the Bible, Old Testament and New, gives a unified message or does it record a variety of opinions. Now, let's just take the example. Are there things that the Bible, Old Testament, and New says are negative? Yes. Are there things that the Bible seems to speak with two voices? Yes. I'll give you an example. In 1 Corinthians eleven two, women are allowed to pray and prophesy, which is the word for preach in Corinthians, with their hair properly covered. That's eleven two of 1 Corinthians. In Corinthians 14.34, Paul says, I do not allow women to speak. 
Now, I don't have time to go through that, though I think we need to go through that. But do you realize the Bible is speaking with two voices there? And maybe two different groups, maybe one, the local house church, and one when all the Christians in the area got together. But the Bible is speaking with two voices. In that sense, we have to think through. But what always happens, one group quotes this text, one group quotes this text, and I want to say again to you, you as a Christian do not have the right to let one inspired text damage or depreciate another inspired text. You do not have that right. We must try to embrace them and understand the tension instead of getting a propositional truth that we can put on a placard. It's very difficult, but it must be done. I hope you'll think through that. I think it's important for us to talk about. In verse uh, 24, it, it talks about that we're to be subject in everything. And may I say to you, certainly Christ is the authority, not the husband here. Amen? People, when I do this, when I preach this in a church, and um, I usually say that the only command, the only imperative in this whole text about wives and husbands, it's not a command for wives to submit in this text. It is in the, in the Colossian parallel. In this text, it's that present middle participle. The only command, the only command, the only command, the only command. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How is male, male dominance um, given? It's given in the husband laying down his life for the health and growth of the wife and children. It is a self-limiting and self-given is how it's described. Not, I'll tell you what to do, when and how. See, that is the world. And I'm afraid the church has misunderstood the difference. I want to pick up for just a moment in verse 27. Uh, excuse me. Uh, I'm going to drop down to 29. You see these two words in your Bible, something like nourishes and cherishes. It's talking about the husband. These are bird words. These are words used for mother birds. The first one means a mother bird feeding the babies to maturity. And the second one means the mother bird warming the babies in time of storms or cold fronts or whatever. Husbands are to feed and warm their families to maturity. I think it's a powerful message if we could. Verse 32, I just say this and um, I hope you, I don't know how to do this really. I'll just say it and then I'll try to clean the mess up. Most of my life in my denomination, people have said that Roman Catholics are not Christians. I do not believe that at all. I believe anyone who loves and trusts Jesus is a brother and a sister. Okay? I don't believe that. But I do know that Roman Catholicism is a developed system that makes tradition and scripture of equal authority. And I, being an evangelical, only accept scripture as an authority. So there is some conflict. But in this verse... The Latin Vulgate changed the scriptural text. And instead of using the word mystery, it put the word sacrament. Now, there's a lot of difference in Paul's word mystery, which means Jew and Gentile are now one in Jesus Christ, which is revealed in the gospel. And the ideal of sacramentalism through the, through the church, through the five uh, graces. Now, people, we cannot allow anybody to change the Bible's text for personal denominational issues. Amen? We can't allow the text to be changed. There is an inspired text. And we must honor that. So I, I'm, I've come to the place that I think that even evangelicals are sacramentalists. 
I've got the place in my life where I've grown up in a church that says, if you want to be saved, you've got to pray the sinner's prayer. I submit to you there is no sinner's prayer in the New Testament. And the place that's usually used is the parable of the Pharisee and the sinner approaching God in the temple, right? And one says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this jerk over here and I'm not a woman and all that. And the poor guy back there is bowing his head and beating his chest. Friends, both of those are part of the covenant people. That's not somebody coming to Christ there. And that is the only example of a sinner's prayer. Now, I do believe there must be an aha moment. But that aha moment can happen during a song, during an invitation, during a visit to the hospital. Any moment any human being says, help me, God, salvation can come. I'd like to go to chapter 6 now, if I could. I wish I had time to talk to you. I know it, we, we, I could explain myself more, but I hope I'm pointing you toward... I'm going to check this guy's notes out. Well, that's the best thing you can say to me. Now, the children, we, you know the chapter's divisions are not inspired in your Bible. The capitalization, the punctuation, the versing, none of that's inspired. It was all developed through time. So there should be no division between chapter four, 5 and 6. This is the second example from the Christian home. Children and parents. And you know that Roman and Greek parents had the right to kill and disinherit their own children. And they did. But this is, this is uniquely Christians. As it's the Christian home with wives and husbands. It's the Christian parent and children. And you know, parenting is tough. There's no perfect parents. And there are no perfect kids. <laughs> The trick is, and I want to say this boldly, but I, 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 I want to say it sensibly, but I want to say it boldly. Your children do not belong to you. They belong to God. You do not have the right to turn them into bumps off the old log. You do not have the right to pass on your political views. You do not have the right to pass on your do's and don'ts to them without concern. They, we must limit them until they can handle freedom and then give them to Christ as quick as we can. I, I pastored about five blocks from Texas Tech University, and some of the wildest kids that I had to get out of jail were the kids from a Christian home who never had freedom and went ape crazy when they got to Lubbock. Parenting is tough. And we need young people that pray for their parents. You say, the thing is, obey your parents and the Lord. And some say, oh, look, it's a promise here in verse 2 about if you pray, you obey your parents, you'll live long. This is not a promise of longevity. If you will look at my notes and look at Deuteronomy, this very phrase is used about five times in Deuteronomy. And it's not about if you obey the Lord, you'll live longer. This is Christian kids that obey their parents are an example of a strong family. And strong families build strong countries. Are you praying for America now? Because nations without strong families do not last through time. Just do not. Now, parents, on the other hand, are limited too. Don't, don't exasperate those kids. You know, why do we fight over you're dressed and funny? Because if we fight over the battle of Armageddon, over every little thing, we lose the battle on the really big thing. Amen? And I think the only reason they dress that way is so your tongue will fall out. <laughs> we got to be smarter than that. 
There are some things that don't really make a hill of beans in eternity. And there are some things we know will destroy them. Be sure to pick where you fight your battles. Okay, now the next, the next one is slaves and slave owners, four through f- four and five. Well, more further than that. Now, these are Christian slaves, and they're told to, to, to work in a certain way. This is where we get the idea of a Protestant work ethic. And I will put it this way. Because we're Christians, we need to be different in every area of our life. The way we treat our parents, the way we treat our kids, and the way we do our task. We were created to work. Work was a part of the garden before the fall. Right? We only do well when we work. Men get most of their self-identity from their work. Now, the trick is that we need to work in such a way that's different from everybody else around us. And what I hear, and this may be really true of union places more than maybe in the South where we don't have unions. And people say to me, if they pay me right and they give me the right perks, then I'll give them a full day. No, 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 my friend. has nothing to do with they. It has everything to do with you. And you need to have a quality of work because of who you are in Christ that has nothing to do with the pagan jerk you happen to work for. Because people are watching and they know who you are. And they are going to see of how we do this differently because of who we are. Now, I do this with Peggy and oh, Peggy's here. I don't treat Peggy a certain way because Peggy's perfect. Because she ain't. But neither is the one she married. We treat each other a certain way because of who we are in Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? So whatever you do, here's the kicker, here's the main point. Whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? And there'll be, people will notice and we can point them to our Christ. Why do you go the extra mile? Why do you pick that up? Why do you stay late? Why do you seem to have a good attitude? Because I'm a new creature in Christ, that's why. That's why. Okay, uh, enough of that, and I see the time, and I've got to get on. Now, I have added a, 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 something to my notes that I need to read to you. I redo these notes every time I teach. My poor typist, uh, but, um, and look, this is how, what I give to her. <laughs> this looks like a drunk chicken in a windstorm. But anyway, I can read it still. So I'm on page 171. I'm entering spiritual warfare. The definitive passage on spiritual warfare is chapter 6, verse 10 through 24. Now, this is a new beginning statement I want to make. Spiritual warfare is of two kinds. Number one, the reality of the demonic, which is surely true, but that is not what this this context is about. For me, I am surprised that I do not have more information from Scripture about this area of the spiritual conflict. Two good books, and I want to mention these books, and I pray to God you never need them. Oh, how I pray you never buy these books. But if you need them, I hope you remember right now and write them down because there are so many junky books in this area. The first one is called Christian Counseling and the Occult, and it's by a man named K-O-U-C-H, a German evangelist. Christian Counseling and the Occult. And what he will do is try to take people who seem to be possessed, try to look at it medically, try to look at it psychologically, And then when both of those fail, he knows there's a spiritual problem. I don't know the difference. There have been times in my office where you try to counsel with someone, you see this destructive behavior, it's coming back again and again, it's going to destroy them in ministry. How many times have I just put my hands on them and said, Oh God, if there's anything evil here, 
anything not of you, any, any power of the evil one, in Jesus' name, I pray that it be gone. I wish I could say that all those prayers worked out. All of them did not. Maybe because there was a medical issue. Maybe because there was a psychological issue. But that's all I know to do from the Bible. This book will help you. The second one is a series of books that are put out by Zondervan called Three Crucial Questions About. And this is on every aspect of the Christian life. Three, Christian, three crucial questions about the millennium. Three crucial questions about uh, Revelation. There's one called Three Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare by a man named Anton, A-N-T-O-N, Clinton. I commend it to you. I think it's one of the small, brief books that you can put in the hand of somebody who's struggling with this area of life. Um, now, number two. This context is about daily Christian living. It may or may not involve the demonic or the angelic levels of the Gnostic false teachers. It is a worldview that Christians have. I approach this area as an academic, not as an experienced Christian. I will share all I understand, but I realize uh, my grasp is so limited. Thank God the spirit is not limited, okay? I'm approaching this as someone who does grammar and someone who does uh, linguistics. I have not had to confront the demonic in my life very often. I remember one time in Lubbock, this lady called me and said, I'm in the midst of an exorcism. Do you know any Latin? Well, I was just floored. I, I didn't know. So I told my staff the next day and my youth director said, you should have told her e pluris unum. That's what's on the coins. Okay. But anyway, that's crazy. Demons don't like Latin. See, that's that, that's that other stuff. No, my friends, I... I ah. The Christian life is a spiritual struggle. If you don't believe that, read Romans 7. The great apostle of the Gentiles says, The things that I would do, I don't do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's Paul. Saved Paul. Now, I know there are some groups that say when you're saved, the old man is taken away and the new man replaced it. I do not believe that. I believe when you're saved, the new man is placed right alongside the old man. It's the which dog do you feed the most, right? And I still struggle with the flesh and I still struggle with evil, but I have a new power now. I have, I have a new purpose now. I have a way to conflict, to, to, to fight the battle now, but I must fight the battle. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's exactly what we're going to talk about. Now, this spiritual battle is related. It's the same grammatical feature as ever be filled with the Spirit, which is a rather rare grammatical feature. If that's true, the problem is Greek language is inflected, which means the form tells you what it is. But the, the, there's two forms, passive and middle, that tell you an outside agent does the action or the subject does the action. It's the same form, exactly the same form. So I do not know in this area of spiritual conflict if I must open the door to allow God's spirit to win the battle through me or if I must personally make every effort to be a part of the battle myself. Because I think both are scripture, both are covenant, right? And so I don't, I don't know exactly where to come from. Now, number C, there are two extremes in this discussion. There is no Satan... Satan causes everything. Now, my little ditty on this is, you know, uh, I live in places where everybody are proud of what they've done in the past. So we, we give attendance pins. 
Well, here's this 90-year-old lady. She's got an attendance pin that's down to her past her waist. And there's three inches of ice on, on the ground. And she's walking up the steps to the church and breaks her hip wearing leather-soled shoes. And she says, the devil did it. No, sister, you made a really stupid decision based on your pride over that stupid attendance pin. A lot of our problems have nothing to do with the evil one and have to do with greed and pride and the Adamic nature. Amen? I never know if it's Satan or me or the world, but I know this, I'm in a conflict, and that's what I'm trying to say to you tonight. We are in a conflict. If you don't know that, you've already lost it. God's provided everything you need. You've got to know that. And then you've got to know it's available, and you've got to choose to personally and repeatedly implement it. Okay, let's go to the text then. Finally, now Paul's a typical preacher. How many preachers have you heard say finally and there's 20 more minutes? <laughs> Me too. Well, anyway, this, literally this means to the rest. It's usually a way, a textual marker of moving to the last point. And that's what Paul's doing. And he's going to say, be strong in the Lord. Now, is that passive or middle? I don't know. Do I allow the Lord to be strong in me or am I called on to be strong? Well, I think both are true. And I see in my notes, there's something I want to show you. So I hope you brought your Bibles. Will you turn to Ezekiel 18 and put your finger there and then Ezekiel 36? And I think I can illustrate which, which of these is it. Okay, Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 36. I'll read it so if you don't have your Bibles, you won't feel bad. This is Ezekiel 18:31. Cast away from you all your transgressions for which you have committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Do you hear that? Make yourself a new heart. Make yourself a new spirit. Now, chapter 36, this is a description of the new covenant, really. And I'm going to read from verse 26 and 27. God says, you've, messed, you've embarrassed me everywhere you've gone, Israel. And if you start looking through this, I will, I will, I will, I will. I think it's 30 times through here. I will. You've messed it up, but I will. 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause to walk in my statues, and you'll be careful to observe my way. Now, which is true, 18 or 36? God does it, but I've got to let him do it. Now, that's true of this spirit-filled thing. And it's hard for us, but I think there's no way around it except that way. Okay, let's look then. Um, put on the full armor of God. Verse 11. I, I know a lot of people talk about this armor, but I, I'm not sure I know exactly that whatever piece of armor stands for. I think that Paul, sitting in this uh, prison, Roman prison, chained to two guards. They changed them every eight hours. You know, I just love this. Here's this bald, little, protruding-eyed Jewish evangelist. And you can see him say, bring two more. <laughs> you know what Paul said? Don't, don't worry about me. I'm being in prison for the gospel has penetrated even the Praetorian Guard. Those men on each side wearing their Roman uniforms, Paul witnessed them 
new shift every eight hours. Can you just hear those guards saying, who's going to go sit with that guy now? I have been in there twice. I'm not going back. <laughs> well, he saw their armor, but probably because Paul's a rabbi, as you know, Yahweh is the divine warrior. And the place where he is described the best as a warrior is Isaiah 59, 17. And every one of these pieces of armor is put on a certain one at a time. And the order that Paul lists them is the order that someone would put those on. So I think that it's obviously military context. And the purpose of the armor is to be able to stand firm. The one repeated verb throughout here is stand firm. It's not don't attack hell with a water pistol. It's hold your ground. Stand firm. Now, I've mentioned, top of page 173, the schemes of the devil. We've mentioned the devil in chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 23, and now he's back again. And I've mentioned, I hate to list this because it may not list all the problems, but Satan was using some things to tear up these churches. And here's at least a list of what he was using there. Disunity, personal sin, false teachers, discouragement, apathy, and suffering. Don't you know if Satan cannot keep you from being saved, he'll do everything to keep you silent and wounded? And don't you know that the place that he's going to attack is the church to stop her advance? That's why we must pray for our leaders. We must pray for one another. We must forgive one another. We're a family. We cannot be the only army that shoots its wounded. We are. And we must not be. And then here he spells it out in verse 12. If I could put it, paraphrase it. Our fight's not against Sue and Sam and Sally and John. Those are human instruments. But behind the false teachers is the demonic. And our fight's with the demonic. And here we have, our, we struggle not. Now it's surprising to me. This is ongoing struggle. It's a present tense verb. It's not one big event in life. It's every day. And it says against flesh and blood. Literally, it says blood and flesh. Now, that is not the normal order. There's only two places in the Bible it says it like this, Hebrews 2 and here. Why it's backwards, we don't know. Some think it's a way of accentuating the humanness of Jesus against the false teachers. I, I'm not sure. But that could be true because right below it is the rulers, powers, and authorities. Now, these words in Greek can refer to governmental offices. In Romans 13, these very Greek words refer to that, that we're to obey and pray for the governmental authority. But here, because of the Gnostic false teachers, because of their view of the levels of angels, this is probably the eons, the angels between a high God and a lesser God, that salvation is knowing the secret words that get you through their sphere of influence. That's why when the Bible, and I've forgotten where it says Jesus passed through the heavens. Don't you see the false teachers behind that? And they had all these secret words, but Paul says Jesus passed through the heavens, these angelic spheres, to get back to God. Okay, uh, there's a couple of special topics here, angels in Paul's writing. I've listed all those things to you. And the demonic. I hope you'll look at some of those texts if you're interested in that. Against world forces of darkness. This is the Greek word cosmocrator. You ever go to the doctor and they have those old pictures of the map of the world, you know, where the, the continents look funny and out in the water are dragons. And if you've ever noticed, it's a circle. The top of the circle is an old man with a beard. It looks kind of like Zeus. That's the cosmocrator. 
It's the world dominator, the world ruler. And of course, here it's referring to, to Satan. Notice we're in verse 13, another aorist active imperative, which means make a decisive action. You must take up the full armor of God. I must do that. Uh, spiritual armor is provided but not implemented. It doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been in the church. If you don't know you're in a daily spiritual conflict, and if you don't know God's provided everything you need, you're a defeated Christian. But we must make the choice to put it on. And then the next phrase, and you'll be able to resist. If you do not know what's going on, you're not going to be able to resist. The evil day is not the big day. It's every day. You walk out of the house, there's a spiritual conflict. Uh, Notice if you would then stand firm. And how do we stand firm? I've listed some things in this text and see if you buy it. Believer's knowledge of the gospel, the helmet. Uh, Believer's position in Christ, you know who you are. Believer's yieldedness to the indwelling spirit. The believer's implication of the uh, implementation of the armor provided by God and the believer's decisive choice and actions every day. And finally, prayer. These are the things we need. Verse 14 is a series of quotes from Isaiah. I don't have time to go through that. I hope you will. I want to drop down to verse 16. The, dirt, the word for shield is the Greek word for door, big shield. They had two shields. Around one they put on their arm and combat, and this door. Now, the Roman army was almost never defeated except by the Parthian cavalry because of this, these, these shields. They had metal hooks on both sides, and you locked them next to your neighbor. And the guys in the middle held them up and locked them together. It's called the turtle formation. So spears and rocks and stuff could not hit them. They were almost impenetrable. In my mind today, this is just it's crude, but it's, I think it's true. Christians are so often fighting each other that we've unlocked our shields facing a lost world and now we're trying to protect ourselves from being shot in the hiney by other Christians. We've had to move the door behind us just to survive in the Christian church. The flaming darts don't only come from the devil, they come from other believers. The helmet obviously is a knowledge. How that works, I don't know. I've heard it said there were only one offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I, I believe that's one, but I believe there's two. But I want to talk now just for a moment about the sword of the spirit. I do believe that most Christians in the United States do not have a sword. They have a penknife. It's about that long. You can get on airplanes with it. You do not have a sword unless you know the Bible for yourself. And there is no greater weapon and way for peace and power in the Christian life than a knowledge of the Word of God for yourself. And I pray you are doing self-Bible study and that you will pick a a verse, pick a book and go through it. And if all you get is sermons on Sunday, you're an anemic Christian. In my denomination, we have a little book called Open Windows where they take half a verse and then give a warm, joyful story. If you think that's Bible study, you really are sick. That's a devotion. You don't need a devotion. You need Bible study. 
When we have people overseas trust Christ, we say to them, you need to start reading the Bible for yourself. Get you a Bible you can read. You can understand. First, you ought to read the Gospel of John. Who is Jesus? Then you ought to read Romans. What is Christianity? And then you ought to read 1 John. How shall we live? Now, friends, if you're going to choose personal Bible studies, I commend those three books first. And if you take a year for each, you won't be confused and you won't be read or lambed by the nose by all that's happening in the 21st century American church today. I think the second major weapon is in verse 18. I want you to look at your Bibles or my notes. My notes are New American Standard, 1995. Would you look, first of all, how many times the word all appears in this text? Five alls. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Holy moly, what an inclusive verse. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We have not because we've asked not. If you're not actively involved in prayer, you're missing a blessing and the kingdom is damaged because of it. God, and listen to what I'm saying and see if you buy it. This is Bob, of course, but I, I've, I've thought through it. I hope you'll at least think through it too. God has chosen to limit himself to the prayers of his children. You want revival? You want to see peace in the world? You want to see your friends saved? Well, you're going to have to spend some time in prayer. Because I believe there's a power unleashed in heaven through prayer that will not be re released any other way. And if we do not pray, we can't gripe about what doesn't happen. And if you say, well, things aren't happening at church, let me ask you, did you pray for something to happen before you walked in here? Do you expect something to happen? Have you done some, something during the week with somebody that you expect something to happen through them and with them that Sunday? No, no, we've turned this into a spectator sport. Say, preacher, light my fire. Light your own fire. <laughs> you have the spirit, amen? You got the book. There's no elitism in this deal. We are prayerless, defeated, powerless Christians that gripe about the structure when we're the problem. The term spirit has no article here. If you don't have the article, it's probably not the Holy Spirit. It's probably the spiritual life. And this can be understood in different ways. It may refer to the Holy Spirit praying for believers, Romans 8. It may refer to Christians praying in spiritual power, Jude 20. It may be parallel to in spirit and truth in John 4, 23. Spirit as distinct from the mind in 1 Corinthians 14. Notice all aspects of spirit-led prayer. Notice these, these characteristics. At all times, in the Spirit, be, on, be alert with perseverance and pray for all the saints. You know, we gripe about government. And I think those of us, what well, I'm not going to say, we all gripe about government. If you haven't prayed, quit griping! We're not going to change with a vote. We're going to change with prayer. We are demanded to lift up government authorities in Romans 13. Whether we like them or not. Paul's talking about praying for Caesar. Who's killing Christians. 
We can make a difference if we pray. And if we just sit around and gripe, we'll become less and less relevant to the society in which we live. Now, if I was in Paul and I was in jail, I'd be praying, get me out of here. I could rend so many more people out there. I have three good sermons left. Get me out of here. You did it to Peter. You opened the gates. That angel came and got, come get me. I want you to hear Paul in verse 19. I am so humbled by this. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Sitting here between these soldiers, God, help me be it. Help me be a powerful, sensitive, open, available witness for you. For I'm an ambassador in change that in proclaiming, yet I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Oh, I'm so embarrassed by that. I read about Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 4 and 6 and 11, and I'm so ashamed how easy my life is. I don't know why my life is easy. I don't know why your life is easy. That we've got to be intentionally, consciously available for the work of the Spirit in our lives daily. We've got to expect more and be more and do more and be different from the society in which we are that the kingdom of God may act powerfully through us. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.